quickening feet that fall Come the gathering rain Suffering as I suffer you Hearing you speak of pain Hello, my name is Audrey Casper and I'd like to thank you for stopping by. You as a listener are witnessing my final project for my Origins and Evolution of Modern Thought course titled The Death of God, which refers to Nietzsche. Today, specifically, we're going to be comparing The Overstory by Richard Powers, which is a piece of environmental fiction, with Ethics for the New Millennium by the 14th Dalai Lama, which is a piece of philosophical and religious nonfiction. Particularly, we are going to be comparing their ideas of interconnectedness and mutual interdependence, also called Tendel, to describe how human beings might reorient their behavior towards the environment and towards each other for a better future. Along the way, we're going to hear from our good old friends Sigmund Freud and Simone de Beauvoir to try to capstone some of the other texts I read this semester for this course, but it's nothing we can't handle together and I'm excited to see our way through it. If you're going to take anything away from this podcast episode, I'd like it to be to question the importance that we place upon human consciousness and how by removing ourselves as the reference point for any and all actions, we can truly see the bettering of our environment, of our future, and of ourselves. If I was, if I am, if I did, if I had... A lover of the Vintage Books podcast, I heard about the Oprah story about a year ago when I heard Lena Norm's interview Richard Powers. This book is actually you know, doing something else. It's dancing on the brink of a catastrophe. And it's basically asking this question, who would we need to be to save ourselves? If you haven't had the chance to listen to this fantastic interview, I'll have it linked down below. But they had completely sold me on the idea of this piece of art. And even then, I was not prepared for how much it would deeply impact the way I think about the world. There are so many ways I could describe this novel but I suppose the most concise would be a 500-page intergenerational saga about tree conservation. We follow our cast of nine main characters, my favorite of which include Adam Apich and Patricia Westerford, in case anyone's curious, as we go through decades and centuries of both American and international history of human beings' relationship with trees. We go through the 1990s and to the timber wars in the Pacific Northwest, in which tree huggers essentially tried to protect the old growth forest that was there with little success and a lot of violence against these people trying to protect the old growth forest. We also go into kind of a modern day discussion about intellectual property. Do trees have their own intellectual property? Can we protect it for them? What is our place in relationship to that? And this book, in its scope, and its size, and its intensity, really impacts the way that you think. It impacts the way that you think in a way that is almost religious. And what is arguably the most fantastical part of the novel, so I'm not trying to scare anyone away, our beloved martyr Olivia Vandergriff has a near-death experience. And upon recovery, she discovers that she can hear messages from trees themselves. A particular quote reads, quote, They pass into and through her body. 
they don't scold her for forgetting the message they gave her. They simply infuse her again. They speak no words out loud. Nothing as crude as that. They aren't even they. They're part of her. Kin in some way that isn't clear yet. And it's this sense of kinship that I really want to focus on to discuss throughout this novel and throughout the other texts I'm going to talk about during this podcast episode. The novel, in the spirit of kinship, casts off humans as a sole proprietor of all that is good and worthy. Powers argues that, quote, humans are almost beside the point, end quote. If the universe existed in a scale of a day, anatomically correct human beings don't come in until four seconds before midnight. And yet, we have the responsibility of consciousness. We have the ability to take care of our environment and to protect it or degrade it. What is the sense of this responsibility and what can we learn from it and what are we missing that keeps us from being able to exercise it with care and with grace? Powers would argue, and I would agree with him, that it's human beings' inability to recognize ourselves as part of a larger system that keeps us stuck in this process of irresponsibility towards each other and the environment. He boldly argues that, quote, likeness is the sole problem of man, end quote. Because we are unable to relate to one another in this intrinsic way, it's always going to end up in destruction. The probing of the limits of, of human capacity to imagine or to identify with the non-human has to be thought of as twofold. I mean, it, the book certainly is about how difficult it is for a person with the cultural assumptions that most of us have to take the non-human seriously and to realize that we are the parasites on an enormous system of production that we simply take for granted and that we assume is just here yeah. here to feed our <laughs> hunger for resources. Mm. So uh, on the one hand, the book is about how difficult it is to break out of that. On the other hand, the book is also about this extraordinary thing that life came up with after four and a half billion years of evolution um, called consciousness mm. and how endlessly capable it is to f of, of finding new stories and, and new ways to think about the world. And, and it's that, it's the release of consciousness and the escape from what we humans like to call the real world mm. when we're being tough and pragmatic and assuming that there is no other game in town except the one that we've made. I sincerely believe that we retain our infinite capacity to escape that confine, the confine that we've made for ourselves, and reconnect to this larger place. And I, I believe that we will need to do so in order to keep staying here. We see the relationship between our interconnectedness and our sense of consciousness with Simone de Beauvoir's The Ethics of Ambiguity. In the first chapter of this text, Simone de Beauvoir discusses how men experience great turmoil surrounding the duplicity of the subject-object divide. Man is a subject of his own life and yet cannot recognize that while he views others as objects, others view him the same. And it's only with viewing himself as an object and a subject at the same time that he's able to overcome this stress and live a productive life. A perfect example for this subject-object discontinuity comes from human beings' relationship to the environment. Because we view ourselves as a subject of our history, of the Earth's history, 
human beings view themselves as worthy and deserving of destroying the environment, the objects around them, without recognizing ourselves as the environment. We are a part of it. It is a system in which we live and we cannot remove the fact that we are objects within the environment as a whole. One could go as far as to argue that when we degrade the environment, the environment reasserts its subjectivity. We see with efforts of pollution and deforestation that the increase in things like forest fires, like floods, and other natural disasters reassert the agency of the environment over humans. But I think that it's kind of trite to separate the environment like this because if we see ourselves as something separate from the way the environment acts, we're never going to be able to truly integrate ourselves and to protect the environment in which we live. It is with this idea that I like to transfer over to the discussion of the Overstory's relationship with ethics for the new millennium. You got my roots and now my leaves are dead. They tumble down in pools of all the blood I bled. We can see the explicit influence of Buddhist history and thought on elements of the novel, The Overstory. For example, we have the character Mimi Ma, whose father passes down to her a picture of the Lohan, which are a group of Buddhist arhats that have been enlightened and achieved nirvana. And it's this specific painting that leads her to pursue some of her tree conservation efforts. Additionally, there's a 2018 interview with the Chicago Review of Books where Powers themselves brings up a quote that is often attributed to the Buddha that, quote, a forest is an extraordinary organism of unlimited kindness and generosity that asks for nothing and gives copious food, shelter, protection, shade, and wealth to all comers, even to the men that cut it down. It was only after I started reading Ethics for the New Millennium, however, that I started to realize that the Overstory's messages of interconnectedness with human beings and also with the environment really hold deep roots in Buddhist philosophy, particularly in Tendel. In Ethics for the New Millennium, the Dalai Lama describes Tendel, which is called in English, dependent origination. This concept has three main tiers that seek to describe it. And the first is that of cause and effect, where, quote, all things and events arise in dependence on a complex web of interrelated causes and conditions. No thing or event can be construed as capable of coming into or remaining in existence by itself, end quote. As if life were a woven rug in which pulling out one thread would disrupt the entire structure, we can't help but see this interconnectedness with human beings, especially in Powers' novel, where the characters realize just how dependent they must be on one another. There's no way to cause something to happen without having rippling effects throughout the entire globe. Just as uh, when you look at a forest, uh, uh, up until recently, uh, we w all would have been forgiven for thinking that uh, the forest is filled with these individual trees that don't have a lot to do with one another. Uh, but in fact, uh, as we now know about forests with both over-the-air signaling and underground mycorrhizal connections, there are no individuals in a forest. Mm. Uh, there are only n networks and communities. In that interview segment, Richard Powers discusses the research of Suzanne Samard, a professor of forestry at the University of British Columbia. And just as she has come to find out that there are no individuals in the forest, it's the same kind of ideology within Buddhism that there are no individuals in the system of life. 
that really helps to hone in on the fact that our actions matter in the grander scheme of environmental conservation. This idea is supported and explored in Harold Coward's article, Self as Individual and Collective, Ethical Implications. In this, Coward argues that the West's inability to recognize itself as a part of a web, part of a grander scheme, in which there is no, quote, I-self, but a, quote, we-self, makes Westerners act in an environmentally destructive way. He writes, quote, A recovery of our collective sense of self-identity is essential for an ethical analysis of the population, consumption, and ecology problematic, end quote. It's this extension of what we consider to be our problems because they are part of an issue that affects the self by expanding the self itself that we are able to truly make progress. Outside of cause and effect, Tendel also seeks to describe mutual dependence between parts and the whole. The Dalai Lama describes that, quote, without parts, there can be no whole. Without a whole, the concept of parts makes no sense, end quote. Human beings and trees, which are all part of the earth, the whole, do not make sense without the context of the environment in which they live. This part-whole connection is really illustrated through the character of Douglas Pavlicek within the overstory. A Vietnam War veteran, Douglas Pavlicek experiences two disasters in which the existence of trees saves his life. One, in which his plane crashes during the Vietnam War, to which he's only saved because he's able to break his fall with the tree. Another when he experiences a landslide in which the only way that he again is able to break his fall are with a force of trees. It is only after a second accident with a landslide in which he realizes a few days later that axemen have cut down the trees that broke his fall in the first place that he recognizes the integral part that these trees played in the whole of the system and by removing these parts of his life he wouldn't have survived in the first place. It is a false pretense of isolation that fuels the destructive tendencies of human beings. Rita M. Gross expands upon this concept in her 1997 academic article toward a Buddhist environmental ethic when she writes, quote, Buddhism does not believe that the purpose of non-human nature is to serve human needs. Rather, human beings are one kind of life in an ecosystem within which all elements are affected in exactly the same way by whatever actions occur. It is in the sense that expanding the concept of the self to become integrated in a system is the best way to move forward. It changes the human from something static into a being affecting and affected. Early on in the course, I was deeply moved by something Sigmund Freud had to say in his text, Civilization and Its Discontents. In chapter 5, when Freud describes and challenges some of the reasons that a human being might love, he proposes that someone may deserve his love if, quote, he is so like me in important ways that I can love myself in him. And he deserves it if he is so much more perfect than myself that I can love my ideal of my own self in him, end quote. Or, quote, merely because he too is an inhabitant of this earth, end quote. Freud quickly writes off these ideas as trite and too contingent upon the self. But I think especially upon reflection of ethics for the new millennium, by extending the sense of self to include the whole that includes the parts of which you are part of that whole, we can really see the value of this kind of deep love for anything that becomes you. This brings us back to that sense of kinship, where even scientifically, knowing that you're made up of the same type of carbon that another animal or another plant was made up of, you understand that all of these molecular parts make up the same whole and the same system in which everything lives.
Finally, the Dalai Lama outlines the third level of Tendel, where nothing has what he calls independent identity because of conceptual dependence. For example, the parent cannot be a parent without having a child, nor can a doctor be a doctor without having any patients. Though I think this plays less of a role in environmentalism than the Tendel's concept of cause and effect and the mutual dependence between part and whole, I still think it's pretty relevant when it comes to how Western identity affects how we engage with the environment. Lucas Johnson writes in his 2006 article, Buddhism, a survey of relevant literature and themes, that, quote, blame for the environmental crisis is traditionally aimed at Western conceptual institutions, including the off-related evils of patriarchy, dualism, or at least unhealthy eschatological escapism, and unchecked consumption. The conceptual identity of Westerners, by prioritizing physical and economic expansion over most else, keeps the West stuck in a cycle in which it must engage destructively with the environment to maintain its identity. Richard Powers writes in his novel, quote, to be human is to confuse a satisfying story with a meaningful one, end quote. But I would go as far as to say that to reach the level of development that a human being desires in terms of economics is to completely destroy the environment that the development would need to foster long term. As we conclude this podcast episode today, I think it's important to recognize that perhaps I haven't convinced you that the modern or Western idea of the self is flawed because it doesn't recognize our interconnectedness. I know that particularly some members of the class for which I'm recording this podcast episode were disturbed by the idea of the self as presented by the Dalai Lama. There is power in being able to kind of exclude yourself from others to know that you have agency over your life and you don't have to be connected to other people. But I think that kind of misses the point. There is everything to gain by treating the environment as an extension of the self and loving it as you could expect to love yourself and everything to lose by treating it like an isolated thing for which you can destroy with little to no consequence. Maybe you'll never be a Buddhist. Maybe I'll never be a Buddhist. But needless to say, there's something tangible about this idea of interconnectedness. I challenge you to tug on this string a little bit, play with it, see how wide your impact is. Likeness may be the sole problem of man for now, but it doesn't always have to be. I am reading my place here and reading the place of, of others here very, very differently. I'm seeing green in a way that I hadn't before.